Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ages, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you've taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Those are verses 97 through 104 of Psalm 119. Verses 97 to 120 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, September the 22nd, 2021. So you're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We're continuing our look into the life of Elisha in 2 Kings 6, 1 to 23. We're also looking at the first Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians in uh, chapter 5, verse 9 through chapter 6, verse 8. And then in the gospel, according to Matthew, chapter 5, verses 38 to 48, which is sort of continuing in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. In that Second Kings passage, we're, we're looking at several vignettes from the life of Elisha. You remember Elisha was the one who replaced Elijah as the prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel after the separation of the kingdoms, after the death of Solomon. So what we get here are the, those authenticating miracle kind of things that, that Elisha did. We, we don't get the same sort of um, intimate looks in some ways at the life of Elisha, but we get multiple little vignettes that tell of, of different things that happen in his life. So here we get this sons of the prophet said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. It's a wonderful thing, right? They've, they've outgrown the space that they had. So, so they're, they're occup- they need more space for the sons of the prophets. And remember under Elijah, he operated independently. He, he, he didn't have others with him. But Elisha understood that principle that, that it's better to have, um, more than one, because two, one is too small a number to accomplish anything of great significance for the kingdom. And so he's gathering the prophets, and it's, so we have a collected wisdom with Elisha clearly being the leader. And so the, the, it's too small, but they're under his charge. And so they want to go to the Jordan, and each of us there get a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. So they're going to go cut trees. He answered, go. One of them said, be pleased to go with us. And he said, okay, I'll go with you. So he went with them. And they cut down trees. But while one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. So it's more valuable to him because it was borrowed from someone else than it would have been had it been his own. And the plea is to say, I've got to return this. It's important that I return this borrowed thing. And so Elisha just asked, Where did it fall? And, And he showed him the place, and he cut a stick there and threw it in and made the iron float and he said take it up so he reached out his hand and took it there there's this there's this drawing out of water thing that we see is so prevalent throughout scripture there's there's places where we are we see this he reached out his hand and took it it sounds like a little bit like noah it's the language that's used when noah reaches out his hand and receives the dove back so it's the same kind of principle this is an important thing that he's done although it seems like a very trivial thing um, a lot of Christians allegorize this passage and talk about the the stick being cut in and the iron floating as the um, the cross and the water of baptism in the Jordan River with Jesus I mean it, I, I, okay 
<clears throat> I'm all right with that. It's just it's not a place that I would go. It's just not typically the way I think about Scripture. But you know, I don't have any quarrel with it. It makes perfect sense to me. So you got the wood of the cross and the river Jordan where Jesus was baptized. And so there's this uh, salvation sort of thing that occurs there in the in the um, in the Jewish world. We've just recently come through Rosh Hashanah, which is the head of the year, and it's a time primarily when when Jews mourn over their sins and they, and they want to get rid of their sins. So at, at Yom Kippur, then then they will be sealed for a good year, and because they will be forgiven of their sins. And so one of the practices for Rosh Hashanah is a, is a practice called Tashlish, which is the throwing of metaphorically and symbolically of your sins into water in keeping with the passage from Micah 7. And so the, the belief is you throw your sins into the water and then they're taken away and they're cast into the sea in that way because all waters ultimately return to the sea. So it, it's an important part of the, the practice of tshuva, which is the practice of repentance, which is a multifaceted thing. And, and I think sometimes we as the church need to think a little bit more seriously about that process of, of repentance um, as because it, it's it's more like a 12-step process, I guess is the best way to say it. But one of the ways to get rid of sin is to symbolically cast it into the river in this way, and, and, and then they're gone. And so in this case, though, Elisha throws this stick into the water, and it causes the axe head to float, which makes no sense. But those two things come with one another. And remember that Moses did a similar, or not Moses, yeah, Moses did a similar kind of a thing with, with water, turning water sweet by throwing a log into it in, in the Exodus. So it's all these things that point towards a, a continuous line in the prophets back to Moses. So once the another time the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants and said, at such and such a place will be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware you don't pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And so the king sent to the place about which he had uh, spoken and, and he knew then that he didn't have to. Well, the king of Syria was not quite as happy about that. So he asked, would somebody not show us here within? He thought he had a traitor in the camp. He said, somebody show us who is for the king of Israel. And they said, none of us, my lord, the king, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your very bedroom. He said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And so he sent him, sent the, them down to Dothan where the prophet was. He sent Harriet. Uh, horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And in the morning when his servant, Elisha's servant, we don't know who it is at this point because we assume Gehazi has been sent away, he went out and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? I mean, it seems like a, a situation you're not going to be able to get yourself out of. But instead, Elisha says, Don't be afraid for those who are with us or more than those who are against them. And he prayed and said, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountains full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So he saw the heavenly army. But Elisha had eyes to see that generally. So the Syrians then come down against him, and he prays, and he says, Please strike this people with blindness. So he's asked for his servants' eyes to be opened and for his uh, for the army's eyes to be closed, so he struck him with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And he said to him, like a Jedi mind trick, this isn't the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And so as they come into Samaria, Elisha prays, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So he opened their eyes and they saw that they were in the midst of Samaria. And the king of Israel said, My father, shall I strike them down? 
And he repeats it, shall I strike them down? He says, no, don't strike them down. If you had taken them captive with your sword and your bow, you wouldn't have struck them down. He says this, set water before them, bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And so they prepared for them a great feast, which is a little bit more than bread and water. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids to the land of Israel because of the kindness that he showed to them. But he also showed power in that that Elisha was able to, to accomplish this feat of striking them with blindness. But then he showed mercy and kindness and sent them back. And so the, 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 the man saw the, the, the king of Syria, saw the power of God, but also the mercy there that that he knew that that this could have gone a very different way but it didn't and so he was restrained in the future for coming against Israel in the gospel passage we see the similar kinds of things we see this this whole idea of how do we treat our enemies and so he says you've heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say to you don't resist the one who is evil so we're not talking about brothers here we're talking about one who is evil if anyone slaps you on the right cheek turn him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your tunic as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs. Don't refuse the one who would borrow from you, which is sort of the opposite of uh, Ben Franklin's wisdom of neither a borrower nor a lender be, right? And then he goes on to say, you've, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. In other words, in doing that, you're becoming like your father. You're proving yourself to be a son of the father when you love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only the brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. While we're in this world, then then our goal is to make him known. It's to make his mercy and his love known. And that's what a principle, I believe, that you can apply in the way that we deal with one another and people in the church and outside the church. When the principle that Jesus establishes all throughout his ministry, not just here in this teaching, is basically this, that um, that mercy is the way we lead with those who are outside the church, and truth is the way we lead with, with those who are inside the church. So, so when the prostitute comes, for instance, um, and, and anoints Jesus, he, he approaches her with mercy that her sins are forgiven. But the, the Pharisees who question that whole thing, if he only knew who this was, then he wouldn't be accepting this kindness from her. He leads with truth with them and, and points out their sins by pointing out she had a multitude of sins that were forgiven, but, but he says, what about those who, who don't have as many sins, who will love more? And so he's pointing at them and saying, you have your own sins you need to deal with. And so it, it thus, it's the way that we should be dealing with people in the church versus those outside the church, and Elisha showed it right there in that first lesson, and Jesus here tells us that as a principle and then continues to live that out throughout his life. In the gospel, or not the gospel, the epistle today, what we see is the opposite of that, which is how we deal with those in the church, and it's opposed to how we deal with those outside the church. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. 
not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to go out of the world. But I'm writing to you in this. So he's teaching people how to live in the world and in the church. So you're living in two kingdoms if you're a Christian. You live in a kingdom of the world. That's where you've been placed. But then God has taken you out of that kingdom metaphorically and spiritually and placed you into his kingdom now. And so he says, I'm not, I'm not telling you to disassociate yourself from the from the world i'm i'm telling you how to deal with the church he said if don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler drunkener drunkard or swindler not even to eat with such a one i mean he he's really saying if you claim to be a brother then i'm going to treat you differently i'm going to treat you as as one who is an outsider he said well, what have i got to do with judging outsiders is it not those in the church whom you're to judge? I mean, we are to judge those in the church. We are to hold standards. It goes back to that psalm that we began with. God judges those outside. He said, purge the evil person from among you. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? I mean, he, he's telling them that, that it's, it's incumbent upon them to judge one another. And that not harshly, but, but clearly and cleanly. He says, if one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Really? I mean, you, if, you're, if you're struggling with one another in some way or another, then that should be dealt with in the church, is what Paul says. Don't put yourself under the judgment of the world. He said, don't you know the saints are going to judge the world? <clears throat> and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Don't you know that you're... To judge angels, how much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? I mean, what's wrong with you? You surely know how to do this. But brother goes to law <coughs> against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even before your brothers. It, it's, it, you know, I've seen it. Unfortunately, I've seen such things in the church. I've seen um, people defraud one another in the church, and it, it's a horrible thing. And the church needs to step up again, as I said yesterday, and judge that and make that clear within the church that we're not going to tolerate that, that we, we are going to stand in judgment over what's happened here. Um, and, and we're going to stand with the innocent party. But, but we've got to be humble enough to allow those disputes to be brought before the church, and, and, and the, that we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, have to be able to trust one another to be truly impartial in our judgment, that we have to be be willing to, to believe that we're being heard, and that we're and according to James, right? You don't you don't make choices based on who's wealthy and who's not wealthy, but we've got to be willing to stand for the vulnerable in all cases, and we've got to be be willing to step up and, and make those kinds of judgments. But but then we have to be those who are merciful towards those who are outside, or just as the Father is merciful with us, we're to show mercy to others who are like us, who are once enemies of the cross, Paul says. And so it's important that we keep those truths in mind.